Hi everyone, welcome to a new episode of Women Leaders, a podcast by Nova. I am Manuela Vietes, your host and content creation magician at Nova Talent. Even though I spent a big chunk of my schedule on creative projects like this one, I am also passionate about food, Formula One and coffee. This time, I am happy to introduce to you my guest, Cristina Valvas, with whom I had a nice conversation on social entrepreneurship, the importance of teamwork, and even a beautiful anecdote of her work with Esquelab that you will get to hear later on. But first, let me introduce her. Cristina is a powerhouse. There is so much that she has done, that she has experienced and worked for that it will not be easy to say it all under a minute. Cristina is a social entrepreneur passionate about educational innovation and equal opportunities. She is the co-founder and CEO of Esquelab, a social project that democratizes access to scientific education practically and interactively. But she is not only an entrepreneur, she is also a science communicator for which she studied not only journalism, but also holds a PhD in molecular biomedicine. Cristina has extensive experience in different fields and doing a myriad of roles. She has been a researcher at Princeton University while she was doing her undergraduate degree. She was a robotics teacher with Logix 5 Smart Solutions, a cancer researcher, and is a fellow at Acumen and Alliance, and more. She has received numerous awards like Forbes 30 Under 30 in 2017, the Choice Seoul 100 Economic Leaders for Tomorrow Spain in 2017 again and in 2018, and she's also uh, the Nova 111 List winner. Are you ready to hear her story? Welcome to Women Leaders, a podcast series by Nova that uncovers inspiring leadership stories from the women of the Nova Network who are driving organizations, people, or simply themselves, from the way they found their career path to their ups and downs and their definition of success. These are their stories and advice. Sit tight and let's get inspired. So welcome, Christina. Usually in this podcast, I like to start by going to the past and asking my women leaders how were they when they were 14 years old. So how was Christina at 14 years old? Uh, what were your aspirations back then? And how did you spend your free time as a teenager? So when I was 14 years old, I was already very interested in science. I already knew I wanted to become a scientist. But uh, also I was from a very normal middle-class family in the northern part of Spain. Both my parents were government workers. My mom is a nurse. My dad works in architecture for, for public buildings. And so in my horizon, it was there was never the idea that I would, you know, go abroad and study abroad as I ended up doing. So uh, my, my aspirations back then were to manage to, to do some research. But of course, I also like to do other stuff, like hang out with my friends, go on camping trips, uh, go to movies, listen to music. So I would say I was a, just a normal teenager, but I did have a very clear drive to devote uh, my future to science. And so like when you were in your first teenage years, you already knew that you wanted to become a scientist. My mom is a nurse and I think that has a very big influence. And also when I was nine, I got as a Christmas present a toy microscope. And I was fascinated. I was like uh, running after my mom all around the house, asking her to pull a hair out of her head so I could watch it under the microscope. And, you know, 
early experiences uh, that you have when you're a kid and are related to science are, are often uh, definitory moments for, for people who end up uh, devoting to science and studying science and doing research. So that was definitely my case. And did you have like any role models in the science world or not in the science world, but someone you, you used to look up to at that age? I think my first and most important role model has always been my mom because she was a working mom, but she was also wonderful to my sister and I. And for a long time, my dad was working at a different city and she was taking care of everything. She was, uh, you know, always there for us, always present, but also very independent and, you know, working on her own. And uh, perhaps she didn't have time to, I don't know, uh, prepare the school costumes as perfectly as many other moms who did not work out of home. But uh, she definitely was there for us. And uh, was giving us an example of a strong woman who can pursue her dreams and still have a very balanced personal life. I would like to, to know a little bit about your university years, especially because I read somewhere that you aimed to become a journalist in the field of science, but you study your bachelor's degree in molecular biology at Princeton's university. How and why did you take that decision to study that subject instead of studying communications. When I was very young, uh, I also wanted to be a short story writer because I really loved reading. And, you know, like, because when you, when you are entering high school, you're forced to choose subjects, right? And to specialize more in the humanities or in the in languages or in science. I felt that I had to stick with science because that was harder to learn outside school in a different way. Whereas, you know, learning about history or languages is kind of easier. But uh, this uh, love for communication stayed with me uh, all throughout. I got to have a taste of what researching and working in a lab is during my senior thesis, but I felt that wasn't enough that, uh, you know, in order to explain how science is done to the general public, to make them understand the relevance of new discoveries, I needed to first know how working inside a lab really was. And for that, I needed more uh, research experience. And that's why I decided later on to, to pursue a PhD degree. I was sure that uh, I was gonna end up doing something more related to science communication. And I was thinking of science communication because I didn't really know of other alternative career paths that involve science, but uh, not from the investigation point of view, but more from the telling it to the public, right? So I was thinking science journalism and I knew I wanted to do something similar, but I felt I needed to, to know better how working in a lab really is. And that's why I decided to go for a PhD, but a short one. Instead of staying in the US for six, seven, eight more years for my PhD, I decided to come back to Europe and do a short three-year PhD to get the best of both worlds, so to say. Also, it really impressed me the fact that you work in cancer research. Like those are big words. Maybe you can explain furtherly if it's actually as difficult as one can imagine it must be. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience of your role back then and how did you experience lab life? It does sound a bit mystical when you see it from the outside, but then working in a lab is like uh, having any other job. The only different thing is probably that uh, there are no two days that are alike. You're always doing something different. You have to read a lot and study a lot about what has been published in your area. You have to sit down and think to design your experiments, but then you have to do the experiments and the experiments are manual job. Uh, it's really, it's really fun. I really like the, the manipulative side of things. And then once you finish the experiments, you have to repeat them many times to make sure that your results are 
are really happening and are not an artifact. And you also have to come up with an explanation, a theory that fits the results you're seeing. And, you know, it's very stimulating from the intellectual point of view. And it's also very diverse what you do uh, in, a, in a given week or in a given month, because when you've gathered enough uh, evidence, you start writing a paper or preparing a presentation for a communication at a at a scientific meeting and you talk to other people, to other scientists from other parts of the world and they give you insights into your work and uh, you tell them also what you've learned that could be applied to their job. Uh, so it's very stimulating and uh, it's definitely not as mystical as it sounds. I was also very curious about the fact that while you were doing your PhD, you also took another course that I understand it's called University Expert in Science Journalism and Communication at the UNED. I would like to know, while you were working in the lab, were you always thinking about that first idea you had of becoming a science journalist? And how were you able to combine those studies by being in the lab? Yeah, so this was... Uh... As you, as you mentioned, part of uh, a whole journey, I knew I wanted to get deeper into science communication because I didn't really know what it entailed, right? I knew in theory, okay, you can become a science journalist and uh, have a radio program or a TV program or write for a newspaper on science topics, but uh, I have never formally studied uh, any kind of journalism. And that's why I decided to take this course you mentioned. When I studied that, uh, I, I had finished my master's subjects during my master's, I was both studying and uh, researching, but the last three years of my PhD, I was only devoted to research. So that gave me enough time. So I had the chance to do, uh, you know, some practical work with uh, radio excerpts or uh, some, some online journal uh, participation for the university. And uh, I really liked the, the sector as a whole. So towards the middle of my PhD, when I was starting to think, okay, so I have a couple more years left and then I have to decide what I want to do. I was pretty set on uh, this uh, science journalism career. But at the same time, I was getting involved in the public outreach uh, group that we had at the, at the lab, at the institute. And we were starting to do activities with children, which are once a year. And, and I was really enjoying being part of those groups, but I realized that uh, when it came to school groups, there was a very, very high demand. We would have 50 slots and they would fill up in the first minute after uh, applications were open. And I realized the demand was not being met and the students were interested in learning more about science firsthand and they didn't really have the opportunity. Of course, because of uh, logistics issues and safety issues, you couldn't have uh, children running around the lab all year long. But uh, that's when, together with the rest of the PhD students who were part of the science uh, public outreach group at the Research Institute, we decided to design some workshops so that we could bring the research we were doing to, to schools in the neighborhood so that children could learn what we were doing inside the research lab. So... In a few words, I think that's how Escolab was born, right? Exactly. That's uh, how Escolab was born. Initially, we, we only had one workshop about cancer, which is what we were researching. But then after we tried it out in a couple of schools, teachers were asking us uh, for different workshops for older students, younger students on different topics, evolution, uh, biodiversity. So we realized there was a demand and we started to design uh, different, different workshops and different content. And this was towards the end of my PhD. So when I finished my PhD and I saw that this 
was promising and it was bringing science to the general public and to kids in a very hands-on interactive way. Here we were allowing kids to break stuff and get dirty and destroy stuff just because they were trying to understand how things work. And that's really linking to the curiosity that, uh, you know, sparkled my, my love for science. I think that's what really brings out new research vocations in children, having the opportunity to experiment and try to figure out how things work by themselves. Wow. And you decided to become basically a social entrepreneur. How has that journey been? Looking back, it seems easier than it was, obviously, but uh, it's true that when I finished my PhD, I already had the sense that uh, Escuelab could be a bigger project, but uh, it wasn't ready for that. So I had to work on something else. So for the whole school year, I worked as a, a summer program coordinator for the UWC short courses and a robotics teacher in the extracurricular area. And this was actually very defining because that's when we created our, our lab clubs, extracurricular science clubs, as well as our lab summer camps. Wow. And can you tell me some maybe of the ups and downs that you lived during making Escuelava a reality and maybe you can take the opportunity to tell me some of the awards or recognitions you have received. So one of the hardest parts for me was doing the business development side because I'm a biologist by training. Luckily, my, my business partner comes from an economics and business background and has helped me out a lot with this. This is one of the main lessons I draw from this. Uh, if you want to start something up, you definitely need to recruit people who are better than you at the things you're worse at. At the beginning, having help from Fernando, from my business partner, was super important for the sustainability of the project. We started out as a non-profit and we opened a for-profit in parallel because there's no legal form for social businesses here in Spain. So we have to sort of navigate uh, with hybrid models. The transition was, was not easy because uh, we wanted all kids, regardless of their socioeconomic background, to be able to learn science in a different way and to develop fully their, their scientific potential. But at the same time, we, we realized it wasn't sustainable to depend on external funding. And we, we had to find this balance between you know, marketing our services, but also keeping this social part alive, which we have managed through what we call a Robin Hood model. Since we started with this in 2015, It's been almost 20,000 children who've gone through our programs, 3,000 of them on a scholarship. And in the, in the way, as you mentioned, we've received some, some awards. Just to highlight a few, I'm especially proud of the National Education Prize that the Ministry of Education gave us back in 2013. And also for the UNICEF Enterprise Award that we received in 2017 because it highlights the social side of our job that is really important for us and it's really at the center of all our decision making. Wow. And if I didn't hear wrong, it's, you have had 20,000 children, right? Yeah. And have you had the opportunity to see some of the first children that went to either the summer camps or to the one-time workshops? Have you seen them and have they told you anything about how science has impacted their life? We do keep track of our past students. And uh, one of the, the first students who attended one of our camps on a scholarship uh, back in, in the summer of 2015 was Luisito. He was 12 years old at the time, so he's entering university now this year. And uh, he comes from a very small village in, in Avila. 
his village had like a 800 inhabitants. And after coming through the whole experience of the summer camp where he had to do experiments and explain the results and realize what worked, what didn't work, uh, we, we offered him the opportunity to participate in the TEDx Youth edition in, in 2015. And he at 12 years old uh, gave a super, super nice talk in front of uh, an audience of 400 people, which is half of the inhabitants of his village. After finishing the compulsory years of high school, he went on to what is called an excellence uh, baccalaureate program here in, in Spain. Uh, so he was studying his science baccalaureate in, in Avila, in the city, instead of uh, staying in the village, but still living in his village. And this program gave him the opportunity to visit research institutions and university laboratories where he had the chance to do some research even as a high school student and he has since uh, pursued his degree in physics so he's definitely an example of one of the beneficiaries of the scholarships who's in a way seeing his life changed by by the experience of participating in Escuelab. It's amazing and this is one of your success stories and if you can tell me maybe anything that you have learned through these years in which you have made Escuelab as a success? I think one of the most important things I've learned is you have to stay true to your purpose. In my case, uh, it's very important that my effort is relevant, that it serves some sort of higher purpose, because otherwise, you know, I don't want to just be working for a company and having the stakeholders become richer and richer every year in detriment of other stakeholders of similar companies who are a competition. Moving on, I would like to ask you on this final subject, and I think that your work at Escuelab had much to do with gaining this honor. Um, we have the NOVA 111 list at NOVA, which is basically the list where we have young talents under 35 or 35 years old who are making an impact today and that will shape the future. And how has your experience of being a NOVA 111 list winner been? Yeah, it's it's been great in the sense that, you know, it has identified other young talents who I wasn't aware of. Some of the people in the list I knew from before and I can I can ascertain that they're wonderful and their job is super relevant, but some of the, the people I didn't know. And this is always wonderful when you're, you know, trying to, to create a project and to make it grow and to also at the same time help other people grow their own projects. Because I think at the end of the day, this is all about, you know, growing together and uh, working towards things that are worth it. One, one particular example of how this can be useful and help us, you know, bring forward our projects is Gabriel. Gabriel is uh, working for the for the city major office in Madrid, and uh, he was selected in the public policy section. And at about the same time he was selected, we were starting conversations to, to organize a project in collaboration with the Red Cross and you know, the social centers they have for disadvantaged children here in Madrid. And ever since uh, we started these conversations, the project has moved forward. And now we're uh, training the social workers who work with uh, vulnerable children at Cruz Roja, at institutions that are under the umbrella of the Ayuntamiento, the city council here in Madrid. This is one example of how one no connection uh, can translate into meaningful progress for the projects and meaningful impact. What does being part of this list mean to you? It is an honor because as I was mentioning earlier, there are other really interesting, really admirable people in the list. So being 
placed there next to them. It really feels like an honor. And I think first and foremost, this is a sign of responsibility, right? Like someone is recognizing your work and recognizing your effort. And at least in my case, drives me to keep striving to, to do my best and to have the most impact. I would like just to finish off the podcast interview with the three questions that I usually ask. Uh, the first one is, in your own words, how would you define success? To laugh often and much, to win the respect of intelligent people and the affection of children, to earn the appreciation of honest critics and endure the betrayal of false friends, to appreciate the beauty, to find the best in others, to leave the world a bit better, whether by a healthy child, a garden patch, or a redeemed social condition, to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived, this is to have succeeded. And what is success? By Ralph Waldo Emerson. And this is how I define success, right? To, to make the difference uh, at least in one life. To try to be good to the people who work with you, who live with you, who are around you. To try to make uh, the life of the people you work for better. Uh, but not necessarily with the ambition of really changing the world, just changing your patch, the, the area of the world that is around you and you, you have an influence over. I think that to me would be success. This one is one of my favorite questions. Which piece of advice would you give to your younger self, let's say 20-year-old self? Don't overthink and just go for it. <laughs> There's no wrong decision. If, if I feel like I should be trying something and it's not hurting anyone, why not try? And, you know, if it doesn't go as expected, I surely will have learned something from the experience. And last but not least, I want to know if for anyone listening to us who would like to either excel as a social entrepreneur or maybe you excel as a future scientist, researcher, or even journalist, which advice would you give to them? I think it's very important, no matter what you do in life, in order to excel, to remain humble, to realize that there's always a lot to learn and you can always learn something from the people around you. And, uh, you know, stay humble and keep your ears open to what others have to say. Thank you for telling me all the stories you told me, especially for telling me how Escuela was born and the story of Luis. I hope that everybody who listens to your podcast gets a sense of your humbleness and of your drive to even like change a little bit of this world. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Time has just gone by so quickly. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed recording it. I am still in awe of this conversation I shared with Christina. I was happy that I got to pick from her incredible mind and get to know her work firsthand. She's definitely working towards a better future. Her profile impressed me from the first second I saw it. And now that I met her, I can definitely say that she is extremely humble, positive and supportive. Stay tuned for more episodes with more amazing and inspiring stories here at the Women Leaders Podcast. NOVA is the global, by invitation only, top talent network that connects high potential individuals amongst themselves and with the best professional opportunities. We create these connections through in-person events and through our online platform, which we call NOVA Connect, using data and algorithms to make the connections relevant for our members and partner companies.